The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. No one connected with this podcast can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views expressed are those of the podcaster and do not represent the opinions of any other person or entity. These views are subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision making. Now let's leap in. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Novakowski, your podcast host, and you are listening to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing. This is the 50th episode of Leap, a bit of a milestone for the podcast, and we now have listeners in more than 50 countries and over 800 cities worldwide. The top five cities where Leap is downloaded are Vancouver, Surrey, Toronto, Edmonton, and Calgary. And there are many small towns too. So those of you who tune in, thank you. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules. It is an investment of your time, which I hope has been beneficial for you. And a big shout out to those of you who have shared your feedback with me on how the podcast has helped you in your daily duties. Your kind words have been an encouragement and motivation for me to continue creating content. So now let's leap into this episode by recapping what we learned in the last episode. In episode 49, the officer considered the actions of an individual up until the point the person was actually detained in justifying the detention. So when the officers in RV Williams approached Williams based on the tip about a man with a gun and asked him if he was armed, the officer could take Williams' response, not answering the question, blading, and failing to put his hands up and turn around as instructed in the reasonable suspicion analysis. Remember. Williams wasn't detained until the officers grabbed his arms, and that was when the police needed reasonable suspicion he was connected to a gun crime. Up until that point, he had not been physically restrained, nor had he submitted to police direction. After all, you don't need reasonable suspicion to not detain someone, like when you simply approach a person in circumstances where they have not been deprived of their liberty. So the Williams case depended on when he was actually detained. The observations of his behavior and blading when asked if he was armed and his failure to respond to police direction to put his hands up and turn around occurred before his actual detention, when he was physically restrained, and therefore those observations could be considered in determining whether the police had the necessary grounds to detain Williams when they grabbed him. It is important to understand that the legality of a detention or an arrest must be assessed not at the moment the decision to arrest or detain was made or formed in the mind of the officer, but at the time the arrest was actually made. I want to pause here and think about what that means. Suppose you formed in your own mind that you had enough grounds to arrest a person for drug trafficking. Acting on that belief, you started to walk towards them to effect the arrest. You haven't said anything to them yet, nor touched them in any way, nor are you pointing your gun at them or creating an atmosphere of control. You're simply approaching them and have not yet communicated your intention to arrest them in any way. Yet, in your mind, you have decided that once you get close enough, you are going to utter words of arrest and physically restrain them. You hope they will peacefully submit, but are prepared to go hands-on if needed. As you get closer, you see the person look in your direction and then suddenly toss a small object down a nearby storm drain. You don't know what that item was. You can't say it was drugs, but it could have been. At least it was consistent with a small package of drugs. Now you get close enough to the person to grab them and tell them they are under arrest for drug trafficking. You then search them street side, finding a pistol concealed in their waistband and a pocket full of poison consisting of a heroin fentanyl mix. 
You know when this goes to trial, the defense lawyer will be chomping at the bit to have the evidence, the gun and drugs, excluded. Why wouldn't they? Without the gun and drugs as evidence, there would be no conviction for offenses related to those items. You also understand that this was a warrantless search. Being warrantless, you know the onus will be on the Crown, actually you, to establish the search was authorized by law. The search in this case could be justified on the basis of a search incident to arrest. However, this would require a lawful arrest, and the lawfulness of the arrest will be based upon the reasonableness of your grounds to make it. The defense lawyer will try to argue that those grounds must be assessed at the point in time you decided to make your arrest, when you thought you had enough to do so, which was before your observation of the person discarding the small item down the storm drain on your approach. Hopefully the crown will be switched on enough to realize the point at which you needed reasonable grounds was at the actual time of arrest, which occurred after your observation of the individual tossing the small item. So, even if you lacked the requisite grounds when your decision was made, the additional observation you made after your decision but before the actual arrest may have enhanced your grounds enough to the point where the so-called reasonable person would have thought you did have enough. Remember, police offices are not to be judged on what they could have done, should have done, or would have done, but what they actually did and why they did it. The Supreme Court of Canada in R.V. Clayton made clear that it is only the point at which the accused liberty is actually interfered with that the assessment of the constitutionality of an arrest becomes relevant when it said this, quote, Intention alone does not attract a finding of unconstitutionality. It is not until that subjective intent is accompanied by actual conduct that it becomes relevant. We would otherwise have the Orwellian result that charter breaches are determined on the basis of what police officers intend to do, or think they can do, not on what they actually do. The charter protects us from conduct, not imagination, and even a benign motive may not justify objectively unreasonable police conduct." End quote. Of course, we must not confuse this pre-arrest point of time analysis with things an officer learns after making the arrest. The determination as to whether there were reasonable grounds for arrest must be based upon an analysis of the circumstances apparent to the officer at the time of arrest and not upon what the officer or anyone else may have learned later. Information or observations coming to an officer's attention after an arrest cannot be used to retroactively justify the arrest. Also, even where the information relied upon changes at a later date or otherwise turns out to be deficient or inaccurate, the arrest will not become unlawful as long as reasonable grounds existed at the relevant time. After all, the material inquiry is not whether particular conduct is innocent or guilty. Rather, the test for arrest is whether a reasonable person in the position of the officer could conclude that there were reasonable grounds to believe. As students of the law, we must also be careful not to conflate what justifies a detention with what constitutes a detention in the first place. In assessing whether a person was arbitrarily detained under Section 9 of the Charter, a judge must first determine whether, in law, the person was detained. If the person was not detained, then Section 9 does not apply. If, however, a person was detained, the judge must determine whether the detention was arbitrary or not. A detention will not be arbitrary if it is 1. Authorized by law, statute, or common law. Number two, the authorizing law itself is not arbitrary. And number three, the manner in which the detention is carried out must be reasonable or non-arbitrary. 
So with that backdrop in mind, let's leap into this episode and learn from other officers in a case cited as R.V. Murphy, a 2006 decision of the Ontario Court of Appeal, docket number C42133. A link to the case can be found in the episode notes. Again, I encourage you to slip into the shoes of the officers to see if you would have done what they did. Unfortunately, the details in this case are limited, but here is what was reported in the court's opinion. A confidential informer told police that a man was armed and was carrying cocaine. The informer provided a description of the man, his intended destination, and a time frame within which he would be at a specific location. Acting on this information, the police took up surveillance at the location specified by the informer and subsequently saw a man, later identified as Tyler Murphy. Murphy matched the generic description provided by the informer and was headed towards the named destination within the specified time frame. When police saw Murphy run across the street, he reached into his shirt and appeared to be holding something tucked inside his pants. To the experienced officers watching Murphy, it appeared that he was holding a gun tucked into his loose pants as he ran across the street. Murphy was arrested, and in the course of a search incidental to the arrest, police discovered cocaine and a handgun tucked into his pants. At his trial in the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, Murphy wanted more information concerning the confidential informer, but the trial judge refused to compel the officers to answer questions that might reveal, directly or indirectly, the identification of the informer. After all, informer privilege shields the production of information capable of identifying an informer except where an accused can establish that the identification is necessary to demonstrate their innocence. This is commonly known as the innocence at stake exception to the rule, which was not claimed in this case. The trial judge then treated the informer's information as the equivalent of information from an anonymous, unproven source. And I think that's important because we can use this case in helping us understand when we rely on an anonymous tip. But just because the tip was anonymous, it doesn't mean the information could not be used and assessed in the reasonable grounds analysis. The judge concluded that the information provided by the informer, albeit from an anonymous, unproven source, in combination with the observations of the police, did provide reasonable grounds to arrest Murphy. Since the arrest was lawful, the search prompted by it was reasonable. Unsatisfied with the result, Murphy appealed the trial judge's ruling to the Ontario Court of Appeal. He relied on an earlier 1993 decision by the Ontario Court of Appeal, indexed as R.V. Zamet, in which police acted on information received from a confidential informer that the accused was selling drugs. In that case, the informer provided police with the accused name and address, a description of his vehicle, and the name and address of his workplace. Investigation confirmed the correctness of this information, but had not revealed any evidence that the accused was in any way dealing drugs. When the police received another telephone call from the informer that the accused would come into possession of drugs that day, police set up surveillance at the accused's workplace. The accused was then stopped shortly after driving away from his workplace. He was arrested and his vehicle was searched, resulting in the recovery of cocaine and marijuana, leading to convictions at trial of PPT cocaine and PPT marijuana. On appeal, the Ontario Court of Appeal overturned Zamet's convictions. In its view, the police lacked the necessary grounds for arrest. The fact that the informer had accurately provided the address of the accused and a description of him and his motor vehicle did not make the informer credible with respect to information predicting criminal activity. The police investigation did nothing but confirm only details such as the accused's address and motor vehicle, 
facts that would be known to anyone familiar with him and did not in any way substantiate the allegation that he was involved with drugs. And the informer's tip contained no details to ensure that it was based on more than mere rumor, and there was no evidence that the informer disclosed their source or means of knowledge. In Murphy's case, however, the Court of Appeal distinguished it from the Zamet decision. As the appeal court noted, in Zamet, police surveillance revealed nothing that tended to confirm the material parts of the informer's tip. But in Murphy's case, the police saw him as he ran across the street, reaching into his shirt as if to be holding something tucked inside his pants. This observation provided significant confirmation of the informer's statement that the subject of the tip would be armed. There you have it. The arrest in this case was lawfully made and the search that followed was reasonable as an incident to arrest. And what was the basis of the arrest? A tip, treated as coming from an anonymous, unproven informer, that a man would be armed with a gun and carrying cocaine and would be arriving at a specific location within a specified time frame. When police checked out the specific area within the specified time frame, they saw Murphy, who matched the generic description of the man provided by the tipster, exhibit behavior consistent with carrying something tucked inside his pants. And just what was this behavior consistent with? In the officer's experience, carrying a gun. This corroborated the tip's information. The right place, the right time, by a person matching, albeit in a generic way, the right description, who was exhibiting the right behavior, leading to a reasonable belief that Murphy was the right guy. The Court of Appeal found the trial judge's ruling in the existence of reasonable grounds for arrest unassailable. Since the arrest was lawful, the search incidental to it was reasonable. The seizure of the gun and the cocaine was not unconstitutional and Murphy's appeal was dismissed. So what can we learn from this case and others like it? Here are two things I got out of it. Number one, how courts use information provided by an informer in the reasonable grounds analysis, whether anonymous or known untested or tested, previously proven reliable or of unknown reliability. Where a decision to detain or arrest is based on information provided by a confidential informer, courts will explore three lines of inquiry. Number one, the compelling nature of the information. Number two, the credibility of the informer. And number three, the corroboration of the information provided. These lines of inquiry or factors are not to be examined in isolation and the test is not to be applied as a formula. This three-part inquiry should also signal to you what is important. So let's look at each of these lines of inquiry separately. First, was the information alleging criminal conduct compelling? The degree to which a confidential tip is compelling is a function of its content, detail, and precision taken as a whole. The more detailed it is, the more compelling it is. This factor looks to address any concerns that the information may be based on rumor or gossip or explainable as an innocent coincidence. The court will look at the level of detail and precision of the information provided. The more detail a tip includes, the more compelling it will be, particularly so if the tip includes information not publicly known. This factor also involves an examination of the informer's source of knowledge. How did the informer acquire the information? Was it obtained firsthand or through hearsay? Second, was the informer credible? An assessment of this factor involves scrutinizing the informer. Their criminal record, particularly if it involves perjury or crimes of dishonesty, is a relevant consideration as is the existence of outstanding charges or investigations pending against them. Their history as a source is also relevant in assessing credibility, such as whether their previous tips had contained reliable information. 
The length of the relationship between the informer and the police officer involved can enhance credibility, as can the volume of tips provided during the relevant period. An informer's credibility can be increased if their previous tips related to the same type of offense as the current information, and their reason or motivation for offering the tip is also relevant to their credibility. Did they provide the information as a concerned citizen? Was there a financial gain, or were they working off a charge or seeking a reduced sentence in another matter? And finally, was the information corroborated by independent police investigation prior to the arrest? This factor does not require the police to substantiate each aspect of the tip in their subsequent investigation, so long as the sequence of events actually observed conforms sufficiently to the anticipated pattern to remove the possibility of innocent coincidence. Corroboration may, depending on the circumstances, be provided from confirmation of neutral data. In other words, corroboration evidence need not confirm illegal activities, but a lack of this evidence can, depending on the totality of the circumstances, undermine the case for objective, reasonable grounds. The criminal record of a suspect can often provide corroboration, although the cogency of the criminal record depends on its similarity to the criminal activity alleged by the tipster and the age of the record. And information from multiple informers can be corroborative inter se, meaning in or among themselves. Does the sequence of pictures drawn by the different sources tell a consistent story? So if there is more than one informer reporting the same activity, this can be corroborative evidence. These three factors, the compelling nature of the information, the credibility of the informer, and independent corroboration are assessed on the totality of the circumstances, bearing in mind that a weakness in one area may be made up by strengths in the others. For example, an evidentiary frailty as to the informer's credibility does not necessarily result in a tip being incapable of establishing reasonable grounds for arrest under Section 495. A weakness in the credibility of the source may be made up by the compelling degree of detail of the information or its corroboration by police. The weaker the police knowledge in relation to an informer's credibility and the fewer details supplied, the greater the need for corroboration. These three lines of inquiry are not separate tests. Rather, they point to factors to weigh in an objective assessment of the totality of the circumstances. The second thing I got out of this case and others like it is that the reasonable grounds necessary to effect a lawful arrest may be based, in part, upon information obtained and or observations made by police after a decision has been made to arrest but before the arrest is actually effected. After all, it is the actual arrest that must be lawful and based upon reasonable grounds. If the arrest was ultimately based upon reasonable grounds, it should not matter whether the police decision earlier made was based upon such grounds. Intervening events may shed light on whether the arrest should, in fact, be carried out. As in this case, observations made after the tip was received, but before the actual arrest was effectuated, could be used to not only corroborate the tip and thereby enhance its reliability, but also add to the factual matrix or totality of the circumstances of the officer's grounds for acting. Your own experiences may cause you to interpret an individual's behavior, body language, movements, or actions as consistent with possessing a concealed gun. So if you didn't think you would have had enough to arrest Murphy and would have decided to merely detain him for investigation, or maybe you would have outright arrested him as the police did in this case, either way, he would have been searched for safety and the gun would have been discovered. After all, detaining someone for investigation believed to possess a gun should also trigger a safety search. The grounds for searching for a handgun are logically connected to safety considerations. So whichever action you would have taken, whether you arrest or detain, you must remember that you will be judged on what you did, not what you could have done. 
An unlawful arrest cannot be defended on the basis that the person could have been lawfully detained under the common law power of investigative detention. Police powers governing investigative detentions and arrests are different. The difference is reflected in the different wordings used in Section 495.1 of the Criminal Code for an Arrest and the Supreme Court's formulation in R.V. Mann for an investigative detention. Section 495.1 states that there must be reasonable grounds to believe that the person committed or is about to commit an indictable offense or has been found committing a criminal offense. For detention, it is sufficient for the officer to have reasonable grounds to suspect in all of the circumstances that the individual is connected to a particular crime. The investigative detention context requires a clear nexus or connection between the individual and the offense, or that the individual is implicated in the criminal activity under investigation. In practice, the line that separates reasonable suspicion from reasonable belief will not always be easy to draw. And you must be careful not to permit the standard of reasonable belief to be watered down or interpreted in a way that effectively negates the difference between reasonable belief and reasonable suspicion. And judges must be careful not to conflate the two standards when determining whether there was justification for an investigative detention by applying a standard more akin to the standard of reasonable grounds for an arrest. The Supreme Court of Canada in R.V. McKenzie put it this way, quote, While reasonable grounds to suspect and reasonable and probable grounds to believe are similar in that they both must be grounded in objective facts, reasonable suspicion is a lower standard as it engages the reasonable possibility rather than probability of crime. As a result, when applying the reasonable suspicion standard, reviewing judges must be cautious not to conflate it with the more demanding reasonable and probable ground standard, end quote. So the standard to be applied to justify investigative detention is lower than that which would justify an arrest. But both reasonable suspicion and reasonable belief as related to an investigative detention or an arrest without warrant, respectively, are subject to an objective assessment. You must be able to explain the so-called constellation of objectively discernible facts amounting to reasonable suspicion for your investigative detention, or, in the case of an arrest, your constellation of objectively discernible facts amounting to a reasonable belief. If you think this podcast would interest others, please share it. And if you have a topic you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. That's legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart and stay safe.